Hello and welcome back to Flowing Backwards, a podcast by me, Phil Peake, and the man in Mosley, Ian Four Candles Moss. Ian is currently recording on WhatsApp, where I am recording out of my hole. And this week, episode 11, is a two-parter. Without any more waffling, then it's over to Mr. Moss. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Uh, hello, it's me again, and him again, 15 miles away in his hole. Uh, this episode is called Mortality, Part 1. I'm going to start, as is traditional, with a piece of writing I've done. I wrote this this morning, and, and um, I've already recorded it as a song which will come out... Um, sometime soon I suppose by the parasite anyway it's called pimple it's complex and perplexes guesswork guides the directives and the rules and appliance they say we're being led by science to close shop or to open who believes a word that's spoken proven liar moving lips Says key workers are well equipped. It's not like squeezing pus from a pimple. Oh, if only it were so simple. If only it were so simple as squeezing pus out of a pimple. Get a fix. Get disinfected. Then a cure can be expected. Can UV light be put in blood? Do these ideas do any good? Let's blame it on technology. Burn the towers of 5G, destroy conduits of communication causing more devastation. It's not like squeezing pus out of a pimple. Oh, if only it were so simple, if only it were so simple, a squeezing pus out of a pimple. Expendables. We cannot trust the privileged fools who rule us, who make mistake after mistake instead of keeping people safe. In responding much too slow, then too quick to push the button, go. They've not been shaken to their senses, and each action has consequences. It's not like squeezing pus from a pimple. Oh, if only it were so simple. If only it were so simple as squeezing pus out of a pimple. What one man does causes ripples and around the world they're carried because we're all interconnected, because we are all married. All the rules of ownership and borders and states are only a construction from which we should escape. All the barriers of class, religion and race have to be discarded. There is only one human race. Oh, if only it were so simple. Oh, if only it were so simple. Oh, if only it were so simple. A squeezing pus out of a pimple. Okay. Uh, that was my thought for the day. Uh, that I... Um, I have a bath first thing in the morning, and I thought of it while I was in the bath. Um, there you are. There's an image for you to conjure with. Anyway, back in time, age 30. 30 hit me like a brick. Um, I had to sort of assess life um, 
and I looked at everybody around me who, who all seemed so stable and they'd all um, got wives and children and good jobs and big cars and lovely houses and everybody seemed happy and my playing around had not really brought me happiness and so uh, I copped out. I threw myself into um, the norm, wondering if it would uh, fulfill me, if my life would be transformed and become a blissful state. It didn't. It was a great mistake. But anyway, I was on a treadmill of work and drink and football, and work was work, which is dreary. Drink doesn't really do me any good, gets me into trouble. And football at the time was rubbish. My uh, the, the team I watched, Manchester United, were rubbish. Uh, even that has kind of reflected on me. I remember somebody saying to me, uh, it's obvious that you're a nut because you still go watching that crap. Um, and there was some truth in that. Although... Uh, I remember the same person once. Uh, once the glory days arrived, he was he was back uh, waving uh, his rattle and shouting and loyal supporters and all that sort of thing. Anyway, um, still going to lots of gigs. He, you know, that was my uh, escape from the drudgery of work. Um, the boardwalk, in particular, uh, was still um, my kind of favorite place to go and watch bands um my friendship with uh, with mark riley meant that i'd go and watch uh, not just his band the creepers but um lots of bands who he had on his label and who were on the sort of network of of labels um um Around the UK, there, there were uh, lots of labels that were interconnected. Was it the cartel who were in York? And there was all these labels connected to that. And so I'd go and watch lots of lots of bands, and uh, it was good. And I, and I really liked the Creepers. Um, Mark, more talented than uh, than he's ever had self belief really in in his music. I spoke to him uh, only the other day. And he was still downplaying the, the stuff that he did with the Creepers, which is a shame because they were a good band. Um, I remember Big Flame, I liked a lot. I remember Big Flame. I think they were on Ron Johnson records. And, and they were very good. And then I remember another band at the boardwalk, I remember seeing, I suppose it was like uh, the, the start of grunge to come, were Killdozer. And they impressed me with the noise, and they did this rumbling, uh, endless version of American Pie by Don McLean um, that I liked. Um, I was also going to tons of gigs at the International. Um, there, was, there was lots, lots of good, good stuff happening. I remember uh, got to see World of Twist at the International, who were probably my favourite um, sort of Manchester band. I thought they were really special. And it was a shame that um, things went awry for them. And but it was it was while they were on the open. It was it was a busy night. And I, and I bumped into this fellow. And as I bumped into him, I went to say sorry. And I looked at him. And I said, "Fucking hell, you look just like Joey Santiago." And he said, 
I am Joey Santiago. And true enough, it was Joey Santiago, the Pixies guitar player. And, and so we had a chat and he told me they were uh, based briefly in Manchester rehearsing for the start of a tour and they were going to play a secret gig at the boardwalk and I was invited. Unfortunately, word got out and uh, there might have been three or four thousand people turn up. So it was uh, it became undoable and so it didn't happen. Uh, I also remember got to see culture and I loved I loved culture. Uh, but I went and I was very, very um, drunk, certainly. Um, I, I can't remember anything else, but I was very drunk. And and I got back, backstage and there were they're impressive culture. You know, Joseph Hill and the guy were there. And there's this clouds of ganja smoke. And I was talking to them and, and I'd been to see Sly and Robbie the night before at the International. And uh, the International 2. And they were... They were play, doing this sort of um, reggae mix with electro. They were taking it forward, really, but I didn't like it. And, and I'd said, and I said to Joseph, oh, where's this Sly and Robbie? It was awful. It was like Led Zeppelin or something. And they were all laughing. Uh, and, uh, and I, could have, I didn't, couldn't quite understand why they were laughing culture. And I got outside and there was a merchandise displayer with their latest album. And it was all like produced by Sly and Robbie, you know. Bass and drums, Sly and Robbie. So I made rather a dick of myself, uh, truth be told, not for the first or last time. Um, so let's uh, let's have some music from the period. So this is uh, this is my friend Mark. This is the Creepers. This was a song that I sang on the the gig that we talked about in the previous episode as the Meek Ones supporting the Meekons. Anyway, this is the Creepers and my favourite song by Mark called Going Rate. Still in. 
pals around this period uh, were, were not just Mark, but also Craig Scanlon, who um, was still in the fall, um, and his cousin Wayne, who had been um, in the Hamsters, as, as I've alluded to before, and we would spend uh, lots of time um, around Presswich, uh, where they both lived. It was good, and uh, Craig um, had, had recently, excuse me, Craig had, had this house, he was uh, going to get married, and he was living with his girlfriend, Silke, beautiful, lovely German girl, and, and her daughter, and it was great, and Silke would cook up some food, and we would go around on a Saturday night and talk and listen to music and drink and go around the pubs, and uh, sometimes Eddie, who I've mentioned before, who was in the Creepers with Mark, would come, and it was all... Uh, lovely and civilized um craig invited me um when uh, when the day came to dj at his um at his wedding when he got married to silka so having asked me i presumed he would want me to play the music that that we sort of liked you know he would he would know what he was getting and i turned up and it was a much more um, staid affair. Uh, lots of family, lots of elderly family, lots of children. And as always, I'd not come uh, mega prepared. I'd got a singles box of 50 records, and that wasn't going to cater uh, for the tastes of these people. And I knew that. You know, I'd got a box full of The Birthday Party and Captain Beefheart. You know, and some reggae and Faust and can, oh dear. And um, I tried to play it as quietly as possible, you know. But you can't, you can't not play it. You know, it's still audible. I'm playing this at the wedding, and obviously nobody's dancing. And uh, at one point, an elderly lady in a in a tweed suit and. Uh, twin sets you know all, all the best pearls on and the hair done up i think she might even have had a blue rinse came up to the dj booth and she wagged her finger at to me and she said i've come all the bloody way from bloody blackpool and you've bloody ruined my bloody night uh, so that wasn't particularly good um it was <laughs> You know, anyway, it was everything that we did wasn't a disaster. Um, a place where we would go often was the Crown on on Dean's Gate, which was uh, around the corner from uh, the Hacienda, and the Hacienda had become uh, de rigueur. You know, it it would it had turned from this sort of venue into this uh, internationally renowned night spot um, of acid house and you know, and raving and uh, drugs and stuff. And coach parties would turn up from Stoke-on-Trent and Birmingham and and they would come in the pub and say to us, where's the Hacienda? And we, we would tell them and we would drink in there and have lots of fun. Um, I remember one night we went up the road after the pub had shut to um, a club called 52nd Street. And as we queued... Um, we could hear them playing the falls, Mr. Pharmacist, inside. And uh, we got to the front of the queue and the doorman says, you can't come in, you're too old. 
uh, much to Craig's uh, chagrin and astonishment, he said, that's my record you're playing. And they said, we don't care, mate. You're still too old. And, and off we went. I also remember us going from, from there to um, a party in leafy uh, South Manchester suburb, Charlton cum Hardy. And uh, we went to this party and um, didn't last long. We got, we got um, thrown out. Um, Bobby was with us and, and his girlfriend, Slavita, upset uh, the hostess. And they asked us that we didn't get thrown out. We got out because it was leafy and very civilised. We got asked to leave, which we did because we were uh, invited then to another party, perhaps half a mile away, and went to that party. By this stage, Craig is completely drunk. He's a hopeless drunk, absolutely useless. And uh, at some stage, he went staggering through the front door and was sick on the pavement. And... Um, Fall fans being what they are, obsessive lunatics, um, the, uh, the, the fall fan hosts came out looking in awe at this fall guitar player's sick and taking photographs of it for posterity. Uh, strange, strange days. Um, we, also, we also went away together. I remember um, Wayne and I uh, followed in the footsteps of Simon and I and went to New York City, um, which was a lot of a lot of fun. We had we had an absolute um, whale of a time. Um, I remember the Halloween parade was on uh, while we were there, and we cavorted around with all these bearded drag queens and things, uh, which was a lot of fun. And one night we went to um, the Limelight Club. It was a famous club. It was this big old church. Well, it wasn't an old church. It was very impressive, this beautiful church. And, and it was uh, the place to be. Um, and we went, and they weren't going to let us in. I'm not sure what was on. I've, I've got – I went a couple of times. So it was either um, Lieback were playing or it was Alan Vega from Suicide's birthday party and there was something on – Anyway, they weren't going to let us in, um, so I, so I uh, used a tactic um, to, to to gain entry. I uh, lied to them, and I said, uh, "We're the fall, and we're we're invited by either Lieback or you know Alan Vega, and they'll be very disappointed if you don't let us in." And being English and Northern and scruffy, um, they believed they believed us, and so they let us into the limelight club. So I was in there having having the time, and as always, it's it's the sort of getting into clubs that I like. Uh, I, I tend to get bored once I'm actually in there, and so I went wandering off, um, seeing what mischief I could get up to. And at some point, I must have tried a door, and I ended up in the crypt of this old church, you know, this club, and uh, wandering around in the catacombs, and there was a door at the bottom of this corridor that was ajar with a light open. So I thought, oh, I'll see what's happening there. So I poked my head around the door and there were two men with a table between them. And on the table was piled mounds and mounds of money. And uh, they looked at me and one of them picked up a pistol and he didn't get a chance to point it at me. Um, I was I was like um, Sebastian Coe. I sped out of there uh, in absolute 
terror. Uh, we also, on that trip, I remember, in just in some bar, you know, because New York's great like that. We got to, we was in this bar and, and we went to a gig by uh, Bernie Worrell, uh, the keyboard maestro of Funkadelic, um, which was great. Anyway, this piece, next piece of music I'm going to play has got nothing to do with that. But I did realise an episode ago, I kept going on, about NC 900 foot Jesus and then never played anything by him. And so it's sort of in the head that I should play something by NC 900 foot Jesus. So we're going to do, so this is NC 900 foot Jesus and DJ Zero, Truth is out of style. This is a journey upon which we shall make some remarkable discoveries concerning that inner realm which is a part of your consciousness this very moment. What you tell them what 
your name is. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. MC 900 Foot Jesus. Exactly how did you come to the conclusion that truth is out of style? Well, I was on my way to work one day. I spied a rocket ship. Some aliens abducted me and took me on a trip to a previous existence on another astral plane. I met a real nice lady there named Shirley McLean. The truth is not an obstacle for someone such as me, she said, because, you see, we all create our own reality. And if a problem should arise, the best thing you can say is don't worry, be happy, and have a nice day. Well, I thank you very kindly for the excellent advice. She said she'd bill me later at a reasonable price. Then the aliens brought me back and beamed me down into this bar. But I could not go to work because Bigfoot stole my car. Truth is out of style. Truth is out of style. Truth is out of style. Out of sight. Yet it has been proved. Uh, I've just had a soothing uh, swig of um, whiskey and orange juice there, so my throat should be a bit better now. So anyway, Wayne and I had been to New York, and uh, as, as I say, I went to New York quite a lot in in those years, you know, because because it was like a big playground, big adventure playground for big kids fantastic i remember the first time i went and i was with uh, a couple of the people out of the mecons and and tom greenhouse said to me what do you think i said brilliant and he said yeah he said so i remember the first time i came he said and uh i wondered what it'd be like he said i thought it was going to be like starsky and hooks film he said and then you get it and it is <laughs> and and that was true it was it was great anyway we went to New York again this time with um, with Craig and, and Silka as well. And um, we weren't stopping at, with Dennis and Lois. A workmate of uh, either Dennis or Lois gave up their apartment and, uh, and moved in with a girlfriend and let us have their apartment. They let it out to us um, in this fantastic building where Merce Cunningham's dance troupe uh, rehearsed right in the middle of the, the village in the artistic centre. Uh, there was a piano in there. There was a record player. And it was sort of home from home, and it was great. You know, it was really great. We um, On the day that we got there, and it's a beautiful summer's day, it was July the 4th, would you believe, American Independence Day, and we went to Central Park because there was a free gig on the summer stage there with uh, Sun Ra and his orchestra, and Sonic Youth playing. Um, and that was good, although Craig did nothing but slag off Sonic Youth, fall copiers, and all that, uh, very churlishly. Uh, as is his nature, he's always been a little bit quirky. Um, we The pub that we'd always used was uh, the White Horse. And the White Horse is famous as um, the, the pub that Dylan Thomas um, drank in when he was a, a resident in New York. In fact, it was the pub that um, 
he spent his last night in and 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 as he came out he uh he proclaimed to one and all that you know i've had 12 large whiskies and i don't feel a thing and then he and then he died um anyway yes the white horse i did like the white horse but they were a bit precious about all the dylan thomas uh iconography and um and i managed to upset them and i got banned uh from the white horse in greenwich village uh to add to the list of places that i've been banned from uh, why i remember it is because it was perhaps uh four or five years before i next went in there and i, I remember walking in you know thinking i was perfectly safe walking in and to order a drink and the, the woman behind the bar just looped me up and down and she said get out your band um so i'd clearly left a, a lasting impression um and we, while we were there, while we were there um there was one particular night we'd been out and we were and we'd been well and truly out we were well sort of oiled and it was sort of perhaps 3 30 in the morning and we got back to the apartment and i couldn't sleep so around 4 a.m um i got redressed and went out and i went to um this bar called the corner bistro which which i liked a lot and i got stood at, at at the bar and after a short while a fella came and stood next to me and we got to talking and the talking got into arguing uh because he was a, an irish american and um he was very pro ira he was very proud of the fact that um he put money you know into the fundraisers and things and this was just after um manchester had uh, had suffered the ira bombing um so I, I was i was uh i had mixed feelings to say the least and we got into arguing and we'd rise to a crescendo of, of, of temper and the the man behind the bar simply pulled a baseball bat and slapped it onto the bar between us with this crack and told us to shut up so we would shut up and then slowly we would build up and this went on three or four times and by this time we're not arguing about the ira anymore well i remember at one point we we're arguing about um oscar wilde's de profundis um and it's you know it's it's got fairly bizarre anyway it we get to six or six thirty and and we and, and we leave to, together and the man says that was absolutely great uh meeting you this this irish fella and he and he said to me he'd just been drinking coffee and stuff he wasn't a drunk i was the drunk um and he said um i own um, a building a construction firm i'm just i'm just going going to work you know would you be interested in coming to work for me so i'm there and i'm, I'm offered um the chance basically to um to live in new york in uh with a job um wisely as it turns out as tempting as that was because i did love new york um i'm also a very very clumsy person and working on a construction site as an illegal alien with no green card and therefore no medical insurance was probably not a good idea for me and so on this occasion i declined him um with no uh, no regrets in that quarter but it's a shame um so there we were in in new york 
Um, Craig was at the piano a lot. Mark Smith had got a bit of a writing block and, and Craig was tasked with writing uh, the, the songs and the lyrics for a new EP. And I remember we went to um, Coney Island and we went to a, a freak show in Coney Island to see what it was all about. And it was it was horrible, um, to put it bluntly. Um, the, the, the people performing were just objects of scorn and ridicule. It, it really wasn't nice. And we went to a bar and I started scribbling down a song um, that Craig helped me edit. And, um, and, and on my return, uh, re we recorded it. Um, so but I'll play you that. I'll play you that. This is, uh, this is, um, this is the Step Brothers, a band that um, we're going to get to in a minute because a lot of these things are sort of happening simultaneously. None of this is sort of linear. There's a bit of bouncing around. So this is Step Brothers, Coney Island. Sun is beating down 
So um, back to um, reality from New York and um, work, drink, football, football often fetching out um, the sort of worst of me. Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm involved in um, fruit and veg trade, um, there's a the period here where um, the supporters of Manchester City have taken to uh, having this uh, gimmick to, to, to sort of um, fill in some of the gaps on the terraces, probably, of waving inflatable bananas around. And through, um, eventually, Fife's Bananas um, decide it's an idea to sponsor a game. And as the local wholesale through market, we are then invited by Fife's Bananas to represent them at this Manchester City game. Uh, so we go along. I remember the City played Wimbledon. It was a nil-nil draw. It was absolutely dismal. It was cold and the football was rubbish. But we did get mightily drunk. And while we're getting drunk before the game, uh, none other than Norman Whiteside um, comes into the bar. He was a guest of Peter Reid, who was City's manager. And... Um, Norman was nominally playing for Everton, but he was always injured. Anyway, he's with some people um, and he's looking a bit bored and you can see we're having a whale of the time. So he comes over and says, can I join you lads? And I said, yeah. So Norman White said, get very drunk with us and we get sort of uh, louder and louder and say the game's a non-event, it's rubbish. And we get back in the bar afterwards and uh, the, the teams change and we're in the sort of players' lounge and the teams come in and I get into uh, an argument with City's um, Liverpool-supporting, Liverpool-born-and-raised captain, a fella called Steve Redmond. And before too long, uh, fists are flailing in the air. Uh, disgrace again. The, the funny thing was Norman Whiteside, uh, the fellow professional, is behind me shouting, Hit the scouse bastard. Hit the scouse bastard. Um, bad man, Norman. Oh, I used to also, uh, through through um, through a fruit and veg um, kind of uh, route, be invited uh, often to uh, Bolton Wanderers to Burnham Park because I did business with a, a firm called Atherton's of Bolton and, and Tony, who's um, sad, sadly um, no longer with us who ran it, uh, used to invite uh, invite us to uh, Burnham Park to these Bolton Wanderers games. And, uh, you know, his large S was legendary. And, and, and again, we'd get very, very drunk. And there was one particular game. Um, they played uh, Chelsea in a League Cup game. Have I got this the right way around? Have I, have I, have I? No, they didn't play Chelsea in the League Cup game. Or they might have done. Anyway, no, they didn't. They played somebody anyway. And um, got very, very drunk. And um, got into the players' lounge after. And I was just in one of those moods. And, um, and I got into arguing with some Bolton Wanderers players. And then at one point, I was actually being quiet. I'm just stood at um, at this table, 
and uh, there's the sort of stools mm. there and a, and a fella comes and perches next to me a fella called uh, Scott Sellers who was playing for Bolton Wanderers he's been playing for Newcastle United earlier in the year and um and this very very impeccably dressed man in you know conspicuously expensive um, cashmere coat and Italian suit you know big gold ring and stuff and um and and they said to me um they engaged me in football talk and Newcastle at this stage were the top of the table team with Manchester United trailing them heavily. And they said, who do you think is going to win the league? And I said, uh, United will win the league, you know, and, and they guffawed and said, no, 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 Newcastle will win the league. Uh, how wrong they were. Um, and then from there, mm. the conversation went to... Um, what do you think of Andy Cole, who had been uh, Manchester United's most recent big money signing? And I answered that um, Andy Cole was fine when he scored. When he didn't score, he was something of a passenger. He needed to improve his all-round game. The expensively dressed man took umbrage at this. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, his first touch isn't good enough. He said, he has got the best first touch of any striker in the game. And I said, you're talking through your arse. Um, he said, name somebody better. I said, Mark Hughes. He said, Mark Hughes doesn't count. He doesn't score the goals. I said, Robbie Fowler. There's any number. And he disagreed. At some point, the penny dropped in my mind who this man was. And I said to him, you're not by any chance Andy Cole's agent, are you? And yes, he was. He was a man called Paul Stretford. Um, I went ballistic. I said, I don't like twats like you who do nothing but take money out of this game telling people like me who put money into the game anything about football, you horrible middle-class bastard. And I carried on this tirade using um, the middle-class insult repeatedly, and Scott Sellers sat next to me, was pulling up his sleeve, and he kept saying, I'm working class, I'm working class, until it irritated me that much that... Um, I gave him a slap across the face and knocked him off his stool, uh, at which point all the security um, bleepers went off and uh, and the doorman got me and threw me down the stairs and beat me up. And uh, I presumed I was banned from Bond Wanderers. Um, but less than a fortnight later, Tony phones me up and, and this is when... Uh, Bolton Wanderers are playing Chelsea in a League Cup game. And he says, you know, it's all right, you can come. So um, so I go along to this game and it's a filthy night. It is, it's blowing a gale. There is thunderous rain. Um, it, and this is the night that Chelsea's benefactor of the time, um, Matthew Harding, uh, was in his helicopter and crashed, leaving Bolton and died. So that gives you an indication of what the weather's like. It's horrible. And we get to half time and I've got a bottle of vodka inside me and and several pints. 
And uh, they, one of the representatives from Bolton Wanderers comes in and invites me to go onto the field to conduct the half-time draw for them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. So I wade onto the field, you know, it's ankle deep in mud and I'm dressed up as one is in these occasions in a nice suit. It's throwing it down and as I go on the field, they introduce me to, to um, the supporters of Bolton Wanderers and Chelsea who are not known for their um, love of anything Manchester United. This is our guest, Ian, from Manchester United. So I'm, I'm, I've got a cat call of jeers and boos from all around the stadium. And I go into the middle of the field to conduct the draw, and uh, which I do. And then it's, it all becomes apparent what's going on. They want um, retribution in a light-hearted way. Um, for, for my misdemeanors, the pre previous time I've been to Burnham Park and, and slapped Scott Sellers. And so the um, the mascot of, of Bolton Wanderers is a, a figure called um, Lofty the Lion. And so this man in a Lofty the Lion outfit then attacks me, trying to trip me up and throw me into the mud in the middle of burned apart to the delight of the Bolton Wanderers and Chelsea support. But I've seen him come in and I sort of sidestep him. And I end up brawling in the mud in the middle of Burnham Park with Lofty the Lion. Um, not very dignified, but as you've already got, um, I've not had the most dignified life anyway. Um, God, above. Uh, let's play something that I liked at the time. This is Delight. Groove is in the heart. Just 
just lovely and delicious. Gotta deal, you wanna know Delightful, truly delightful Life making it, doing it, especially at a show Feeling kinda high like a Hendrix haze Music makes motion moves like a maze All inside of me, heart especially Hilt of a rhythm, where I wanna be Come on, Flowing, glowing with electric eyes You dip to the dive, baby, you'll realize Baby, you'll see the funk inside of me Baby, you'll see that rhythm is a key Get, get, with it, with it, can't think, quit it, quit it Stomp on a speak when I hear funk blue blue Playing pop pipe, follow her to shoot Baby, just sing about the groove Sing it, place that we often frequented uh, usually Craig Wayne and myself was Staley Bridge train stations buffet bar uh, we went there because it had a great selection of beers it was sort of nice and quirky and nobody mithered us it was really really good it was just nice it's good and we could um, get the train back to civilization it was it was fine, and we and we were we were very much regulars um, there, and but after after a period, we st- our space started being encroached by these folk singers who sort of uh, stealthily moved around us, and then um, sudden, suddenly with lutes and ukuleles and things or not. Um, dressed in woolly jumpers and, you know, lacy caftans, um, stood up and started singing sea shanties while holding their ears, uh, caterwauling. It was, it, was, it was horrific. It was horrible. And we had a few weeks of this, and uh, we were there, and, and, and they came. So this time I said to them, do you, do you mind if I join in, if I sing a song tonight? Oh, no, they were delighted, you know, that, that, um, that we were willing to join in. So my t- time came, and I stood up, and, and I'm sure I held my ear in a in an ironic way, and sang in a in a, in a high pitched voice, and uh, I sang the old hamsters uh, number. I'm a cunt to them, uh, while holding my ear, you know, something like I'm a cunt, I'm a cunt, I do everything I shouldn't. I'm a cunt. I'm a cunt. I'm an arsehole creeping. Runty, cunty, 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 cunty. Anyway, um, <laughs> they, didn't, they, 
they didn't like it and uh, an invisible attritional wall was uh, placed between uh, they and I um, from that moment onwards. Um, the international club, as I've said, was somewhere they used to go. Um, and I'd go there a lot with, with Mark Riley. Um, and and there, was a, there was a night we went, uh, we went along, and there was Mark and, he, and his wife, Tracy, um, two of my dearest friends, and we went to see the Gun Club, who were one of my favourite bands, and the gig was great. And uh, I remember dancing with Tracy to T-Rex's 20th Century Boy, and uh, other people came and joined us. There was lots of nice company. And Kid Congo Powers, who was playing guitar in the gun club and who had been in the cramps, came out and I sat talking to Congo Powers. Uh, so on the face of it, it was a fantastic night. Unfortunately, um, as I've said, I, I do suffer uh, serious depression. And all through this night, I was sort of there, but not there. I felt at a distance. I felt alienated from everybody. I felt that I was just acting a role. And I was deeply, deeply disturbed and distressed. Where this had come from, I don't know. It had been a long time since I'd been like that. But that's the nature of mental illness is, you know, you can try and keep it at bay. Um, but there's no sure fire thing. If it's there, it's there. Anyway, I remember Mark and Tracy, we left the club at the end of the night, and Mark and Tracy said, um, good night. And I remember pointedly saying uh, goodbye. And I got a taxi and went home to my house. And by this stage, I was sort of, my, my resolve was ice cold. It wasn't hysterical or anything. And I just resolved, to kill myself. So it's about 2.30 a.m. in the morning, and I went upstairs and uh, started running a hot bath and laid out some razor blades, and I was going to uh, cut my wrists and bleed out in the bath. Nothing more certain, absolutely nothing more certain. I say no hysteria. It's not like, um, like I'm in, in some sort of emotional state. Quite the opposite. I'm in a blank state. I'm just going to do it. And uh, and the bath's running. And then at 2.30 a.m., there's a knocking on the door. And I ignore it. And then the knocking on the door comes. And it doesn't, it, it's sort of weird, your mind, because curiosity made me go and answer the door. So I turn the bath taps off and I go down. And it's a fella called Steve Wright, who I know. He's not somebody I would ever have described as being a friend at, at that point. He's just, he's an acquaintance and he's there with his wife and he invites himself in and they sit there and I'm waiting for them to go, but they won't go. In fact, Steve gets very insistent when they are ready to go that I go with them, won't move unless I go with them. They don't live far away. And so I'm dragged off to their house and his wife goes to bed and Steve sits up all through the night talking to me until there's a knock on his door around 8 a.m. and 
somebody has come to pick him up to go to work and he simply goes and splashes his face and throws on some work clothes and and excuses himself you know and says you stay here if, if you want or whatever so i don't i i i go um blinking into the daylight and i get home and the bath water is still there cold and the razor blades but it's a different day now you you're just different the moment has, has passed and so um i throw the razor blades away and the bath runs out and uh and i'm there alive um because steve has saved my life um why he's turned up at that point i don't know i know you i didn't see steve then for maybe 15 years and um the next time i saw him i was in greece in athens i was walking down a, a, a street one one night and steve was sat outside a bar so i joined him and, and we had a drink and, and we talked and I made reference to, to this and said, you know, you're my guardian angel. You, you saved my life. You know, tell what was it from your perspective? Why did you do that? And uh, I don't know if he's being truth, trying to spare me feelings. But he said, I don't remember it. Um, and he might not do it, but it's, it, was, it, was, um, it was a strange, strange incident. And, and, and that's perhaps why this episode's called um, Mortality because it was that was a massive jolt to me that um i was still ill mm, it wasn't good so uh, to commemorate that because uh, they were the band i'd gone to see we're going to play the gun club and this is the fire of love because we've got to hold on to the fire of love as well it's what keeps us uh, keeps us burning keeps us moving keeps us living and you know, here it is. This is the gun club, the fire of love. Please. 
around who's working and and things i've rewarded myself with holidays and um as a bachelor um you know i would go with another bachelor which turned out to be quite often um my friend uh, robert who i'd shared a flat with being in a band with had lots of problems with but he was still a, a you know he was a he was a friend and we traveled around um europe and um and had some good times and some bad times um dear me yeah we went we we went i remember being in portugal with with robert and he was always more gregarious than me you know i was quite happy to just chill out read a book you know and have a drink at night and you know just sort of be on our own but he always wanted to mix with people which is nice you know he's again he's probably better socially adjusted than me uh, but i remember this one particular night we were in this in this bar and he's he's um he's ingratiated us with um this scandinavian couple huge bloke this viking like fella and this blonde haired striking big tall blonde haired wife and robert is a hopeless drinker that has to be said he's he's useless he's a big fella but with no capacity for alcohol so with a minute he's just babbling and i'm left to entertain these scandinavians who, who i've got no particularly empathy with i remember the viking saying at one point we love very much your english super group the status quo and samantha fox big girl yeah ha 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 and uh, anyway robert uh, went staggering off at some point to the toilet and then i saw him stagger out of there and out of the bar uh, retching and vomiting in the street and the scandinavians a few minutes later said to me where is robert i said i don't think he felt very well i, th I think he's gone home and the scandinavians said to me he's a pussy yeah <laughs> which I liked, yes, he was, although he's a very frightening, big, violent pussy. Um, also, I remember being in France with him, somewhere in the middle of France, and he was always um, trying to be preposterously um, civilised and um, thought he was cleverer than he was, and he would put on the airs and graces of sophistication. So we sat um at this restaurant on, on the outside you know on, on a sort of boulevard we sat there and the waiter comes over and i go to order a meal for us and robert insists that i can't order in english that it's bad form even though the man speaks english so i um you know i acquiesce and in in french he orders us a meal so we sit there and we eat this big meal and drink a bottle of wine and then I beckon the uh, waiter over and in English ask him for the bill. And he looks at me somewhat nonplus and then explains to me that Robert, uh, in his fractured French, has ordered us two meals each and proceeds to fetch out a second meal for us um, that we embarrassedly pick at and order another bottle of wine. Um, such was life with, with Robert dear me um in venice again his preposterousness we went to an art gallery um to see 
an exhibition. It was there were some great paintings. There was Picasso there, Salvador Dali, uh, Kadinsky, um, the man who spatters it. What's he called? Jackson Pollock. Lots of great paintings. <laughs> and Robert, as I say, who likes to uh, affect a very cultured air, was somewhat put out when I was. Um, being given very preferential treatment, being given glasses of wine and being led by the elbow to view certain things, uh, you know, through the ropes. And, and clearly, uh, I'd been mistaken as some sort of uh, art collector or critic. And Robert, just as my lackey, he didn't like it. Uh, on a more touching note, we went to um, Yugoslavia just before the splitting up of Yugoslavia, just before the Bosnian War. And we ended up in uh, a little town of Mostar, historical town of Mostar. And um, at, at some point, we um, there, there were a group of, of young boys, only eight and nine, playing football, clearly no money, young Bosniak kids. And uh, we played football with them. And they were very sweet. And I uh, left my wallet and my camera behind, and as we boarded a bus, they come running after the bus, knocking on the bus to attract the driver's attention, and came on to give me back my wallet and stuff, which they could easily just have taken. They had nothing, and it was such a lovely act of kindness, one of those things that gives you faith in human nature. And a month later, uh, the Bosnian War was in full swing, and Mostar was one of the worst affected places and more than once I've sat and shed a few tears for those those boys who 50-50 if they survived it at best. Um, very sad, very sad life. So anyway, uh, I came, came back from my travels and uh, as I've said, Eddie Fenn, who was in the Creepers, who'd been in Tools You Can Trust, was a friend and uh, Eddie had bought this house in Rhodes, not in Rhodes, Greece, but in Rhodes, Middleton, a suburb of Manchester. And it had a cellar and he built into it a recording uh, studio he wanted to try out. So he asked me to go down and we would write a song together. So we, we did this. It's the first time I'd done music for considerable time. Um, and we did it and, it, and it was okay. It was a bit derivative. It was a bit Rolling Stones. It was it was a, a baby step for me. But anyway, he played it to a friend of his who at that point I'd never met, a fellow called John Gill. And John liked it and wanted to work, wanted to start a proper project. And so um, I was invited to start making some recordings with... Um, Ed and John in this cellar. John was um, a renowned studio technician, producer. He'd introduced the Mekons um, to their sort of uh, country leanings, you know, as, as they tried to expound their, um, their sound, you know, from out of the sort of post-punk thing and take on more uh, things. And he... he um, he worked at the band on the wall and, and taught uh, sound students uh, his techniques. He was a lovely man. He was, in fact, John was probably the single most intelligent man 
that I've ever met. But he had this wonderful knack of imparting information to you without ever talking down to you. It was he was a really wonderful uh, human being, was John. Anyway, we started working uh, on on these um, these pieces of music, and which we've already played one of them, the Step Brothers, for that was the name that we gave it, and um, we borrowed musicians who who John knew. A couple of Mekons came down, Tom and Lou, who's later in Public Image, who'd been in The Damned, came down. Uh, members of Edward II, who were a sort of folk reggae outfit. Um, and there was there was interest uh, from record companies in, in what we were doing. And it was, it was good. I, mean, I really enjoyed doing it. And John rebuilt my confidence. I didn't think I could sing. I'd got no uh, belief whatsoever. Uh, at this stage, it had been so long, and I'd always I'd just had knocks. Uh, and 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 John took me aside, and uh, he he was very into sort of Bangra, you know, all all the the sort of uh, melding of Indian and uh, and reggae stuff. And um, he explained to me that I was every bit the equal of of these artists that I'd got a rhythm. A rhythmal, rhythmical sensibility, the same as these people. And I said, oh, that's all right, but I've got no range. And then he showed me, he said, you've got bigger range than you think. And he, and he, and he actually showed me, and, and he rebuilt my confidence. And it, it was great working with him. Uh, and we finished an album, and uh, very, very pleased with it. But uh, towards the end of it, life started getting in the way. My dad had a, a big heart attack. And uh, he, he came out of hospital from that. Uh, my mother was terrified he wasn't well. And then uh, about three months later, he had this, um, he was rushed into hospital for no apparent reason. This huge swelling like a rugby ball uh, appeared across his stomach. And what it was, was uh, it was an old, injury and scar tissue <clears throat> had flared and swollen and he needed emergency surgery um, with a weak heart. Things were touch and go from the surgery. Anyway, um, he, came, he came through the surgery and uh, he was in hospital and I was, I was there with my mother at some point. You know, she, she's elderly and, and very worried. And um, I got my brother to take uh, my mother to his house. Uh, excuse me, just having a little drink. And uh, I sat through the night with my dad. And... Uh, it wasn't good, you know, because hospitals <coughs> have been starved of funds and we're in the Thatcherite era. And equipment was constantly breaking down and my dad was really suffering. I'd go to the nurses and they were doing the best. They were apologising. It's just the state of the equipment they were working with. And um, we got... 
through to the morning and I was really pleased that seemed a big psychological thing that he'd got through the night and um, I went home and I remember putting on um, David Bowie's Low album and sat listening to that before I went to, to sleep and my brother and my dad's brother and sister um, took over and, and sat with my dad through the day and he was he really perked up at one point he um he sang waltzing matilda to them which was one of his favorite sort of songs anyway as the evening came they went and i returned to the hospital i remember sitting with my dad and my mom and uh i held me my dad's hand you know and uh my mom said i've never seen seen you hold your dad's hand you know since she was a little lad He's, he's, he's never wanted me to since. Uh, anyway, we sat there, a nice family unit, and my dad was uh, in some discomfort, and he asked me to help him move up the bed, and uh, I very gently put my arms around him, and at that point he had a major heart attack and died in my arms, um, which was awful. Um, and it, it, you know, you've, you've, I had to, I've then got the responsibility of looking after my mother, who was absolutely devastated. She doted over my dad. And so the music that I'd been enjoying doing um, was put to one side. Just had to uh, add other priorities. So it's goodbye to the music. And uh, we'll leave it there, shall we? Let's play um, David Bowie's Weeping Wall because that was the music that I listened to on the day that my dad died. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for Phil. Thanks to Helen. Thank you all um, for, for letting us know um, that we're reaching you and touching you. Okay. Um, stay safe. We love you.
and thank you very much again for listening uh it's it's good to get feedback from you so don't forget to feed us back on www.flowingbackwards.co.uk and on our facebook page flow backwards so that's the end of another show for now we will no doubt be back for part two because it would be like leaving a chicken without a head so enjoy the next one bye